Welcome to the Modern Cloister, where we cultivate deeper thinkers and worshipers through conversations about the Christian life, in the same spirit as the community conversations that took place during the Reformation at the Black Cloister, the former monastery and home of Martin Luther and his wife, Katharina von Bora. I'm Carissa, and I'm here with Kevin, and we're so glad you've joined us here at the Modern Cloister. If you like the types of conversations we've been having, we encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe, to connect with us on social media at Carissa Turner and the J. Kevin Turner, and send us your thoughts, questions, experiences, and suggestions for future topics to moderncloister at gmail.com. Today, we're excited to continue our series on the five solas, which are the five foundational doctrines of the Protestant Reformation that are still as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. They marked the breaking away of what is now the Protestant Church from the Catholic Church and continue to provide the basic foundations of our theological beliefs. However, while they remain incredibly important today, many people, including Christians, are unaware of them or do not fully understand their implications to their everyday life and the life, practices, and beliefs of the Church. In this episode, we are going to talk specifically about the second of the solas, sola gratia, or grace alone. However, if you have not yet listened to our introduction of the Reformation and the solas, and our episode on sola scriptura, or scripture alone, we encourage you to do so before listening to this episode and all the ones that will come after it, as it will provide essential historical background and context for these doctrines and our discussion. Yeah, so a lot of you know it's grace alone, then faith alone, Christ alone, and it's hard to not talk about one without talking about the others. Um, So we're kind of trying to break it down a little bit on, if you look at Romans 8.30, for those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So uh, kind of our focus over these next three are essentially going to be that the election, justification, and then imputation slash sanctification. And we'll get through all that. So if you hear us talking about grace and think, man, y'all really left out. A bunch of important things it's probably gonna fall into some of the other things because there's a huge overlap because it, it all stands on each other it's it's grace alone through faith alone in christ alone uh this is our attempt to break them up uh so it's gonna be great listen to all of them but to get it get us started carissa what is grace alone yes grace alone a simple definition would be that grace is the unmerited favor of god In the New Testament, we see this show up as the word grace all throughout the books of the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, we often find references to God being a gracious God or him showing his graciousness to his people. And that is really the same quality and character of God being shown in the First Testament. One of the things that's really important to note about this is that the concept of grace is intimately connected to the fallenness of humanity. It is basically the the reason we need God's grace is because we live in a state of total depravity. Because of the fall, because of our human rebellion against God, we are by nature deserving of wrath and judgment and can do nothing to come to God on our own. We can by ourselves not make any movement toward God without his unmerited favor and grace toward us. What this means essentially is that we cannot be saved without God saving us. That salvation is entirely a work of God in its origin, in its execution, and its consummation. And so when you think about this in the context of what was happening in the Reformation, it's important to understand where this sits with the popular belief at the time around grace. So can you walk us through a little bit of what was happening historically in the church at that time around the concept of grace? Sure. So all all churches are going to um, say grace and 
as, as needed for your salvation, right? And as we've said throughout the series and we'll continue to say, the issue here with the Reformers kind of over and against the Catholic Church at the time is, is that alone. That's why it's the five solas, which as we talked about is mm-hmm. not correct Latin, it's soli or whatever it is. But the point is, it is the alone part of the grace. So uh, a common view for the Catholic view is essentially that God's grace enabled you to then earn your salvation. And there was uh, a kind of working together mm-hmm. between you and God um, to to earn your salvation. Essentially, that's why you'll hear some of the reformers uh, talk about monergism. That is mono, that is God. There's only one way of the earning. And, uh, and that was essentially the reform view uh, at the time was that it's it's received by grace by grace of God alone there's there's nothing else there's mm-hmm. it, it is finished right the, the work is done um, once and for all it's given to us at one time and there's nothing else we can do to gain more mm-hmm. <laughs> or to lose any you know and this is a high view of, of God's sovereignty right mm-hmm. it's, it's us being calling as God's chosen people yeah absolutely and I, I think a good way to, to think of it too is that the the view at the time in the Catholic Church, was that it really added another layer to your salvation, that they, they would agree that it was by the grace of God, it was by his favor, but it added a layer in order to make it happen. This cooperation that Kevin was talking about, you had to kind of partner and work with God to actually achieve it in that sense. And so I think that's where the alone really took hold, was that difference. Yeah, the, the grace there. And we'll get to more of these in our later episodes. Like I said, there, there's a lot of overlap. But there's in the Catholic, Catholic doctrine at the time, there was no real distinction between justification and sanctification. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there's kind of like a, a final righteousness that you have to earn. So it's a two-step sort of we're giving the righteousness of Christ, you know, infuse a little, little shot of righteousness. Now we are righteous-ish mm-hmm. <laughs> that we then have to earn our righteousness. So, you know, gives us a leg up, washes away the original sin, and then we move forward from there. Yeah. And that's... That's not at all. Reformation is no. You, if you're if you're dead in your sins, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even given the righteousness of Christ, there's still nothing you can do. It's all yeah. It's all Christ. It reminds me of the, that that God is the initiator and perfecter of our faith. Mm-hmm. Like in this side of the equation, it, it's like zeroed in solely on He is the initiator. He is the one that calls. He is the one that that saves you by grace. It's nothing that we do. So that just popped into my head, and I thought that was <laughs> the initiator made sense to me. And you know, there's there's a lot of places in which this is seen throughout the Bible. We had a couple, um, a couple of particular examples. Kevin shared one earlier from Romans. There's also a really a really popular and well pointed one too in Ephesians two eight, which is the one many of you may know, where it talks about how we are not saved um, by anything but grace, and it is so that no one can boast. I'm paraphrasing, of course, mm-hmm. um, but that is it's a grace of God. Uh, and it really saturates so much of the New Testament. But there's also an overarching theme to that in the Old Testament, too, when you look at the the story of Israel as God's chosen people. They were not chosen because they were great. They were simply chosen because God chose them. And when you look at the entirety of that story in the redemptive narrative, that is really a picture that prepares you for how it plays out in the New Testament and really supports some of that undergirding that is really by God's unmerited favor time and time again toward his people when they've rebelled and walked the other way. Right. And we have Christ in the gospel saying that, you know, the, the shepherds, he as the good shepherd, the sheep, that's us know his voice and we come when he calls. And so that's that kind of calling out. There's a specific people there. Yeah. 
And I think one of the things that is particularly interesting about this conversation is because this is to some degree where you start really butting up against some cultural implications for some of these these next couple of solas. And in particular, as, as we think through this one, you know, as Kevin has mentioned, and we've talked about a little bit, these next three, the, the grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, really form the core of the theology of the reformers. But this first one really runs up against the popular concept that people are good at their core. This concept of total depravity is a really important one to understand in the context of grace alone. Because, and I'm sure you've run into it, we've run into it, there's this tendency toward thinking that people really have a, you know, a good, gooey, mushy center. And at the, at the core of everybody, there is like a, a goodness. And while, of course, God's common grace toward humanity allows us to to be preserved and to have good things. Um, the world would be much, much worse off if God's common grace was not present in the world. Um, it doesn't really take away this this reality that we are in a state of total depravity in and of ourselves. Um, it, it takes away this need for grace. And I think one of the things I even run into is people don't think they, they have a need for it because they think, oh, I'm a good person or she's a good person. He's a good person. I mean, he tried hard, you know, so mm-hmm. he's like, just generally speaking, a, a good person. And a lot of that came out of the Enlightenment, which we've talked about. And we talked about a lot in our last episode. Do you want to connect the dots there a little bit for how yeah, some of again, that? Yeah, um, again, we, we dive into this more in the, the scripture alone. Um, but yeah, in the Enlightenment, kind of the rise of humanism, you know, kind of post-scientific revolution, it's just a belief in that basically humans are good. We can accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. There's a goodness in us and that um, sin taints us. Even a lot of religious you'll hear, um, you know, we were we were made good, but of course we've we've fallen and they're sinful and and we're tainted by the world or we're tainted by sin or we're tainted by selfishness or pride, whatever it is. Um, but but no one believes the clear biblical doctrines from you know Galatians from Romans mm-hmm. that tell us we were we were dead. We were once dead men. I mean that's that's where we were when it comes to our 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 sin and our goodness. Yeah, and I don't think you know even. It's true. If you, if you have conversations with people at work, or maybe you think like that may be your initial reaction, like no, that's that's not right. <laughs> but if you talk to people all this, I can't tell you how many conversations where you're like, well, I, I think people are just mostly good. Or when something bad happens, you're like, oh, why would good people? Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, they're good people. And, and don't you think that God will, you know, X Y Z? Right? There's always some sort of. Mm-hmm. If they tried, if they were good, but again, the teaching is you can't try, you can't earn, and uh, no one's good. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's it's not saying that every person that exists is as bad as they could possibly be. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Total depravity <laughs> um, does not mean we're as bad as possible. Yes. I remember very early on when I was learning some of these doctrines, I had that question, and I remember being like, "Well, I don't feel like I'm just like every single part <laughs> of me is like it like." is absolutely like the worst version of myself that could possibly be. And so in no way is it saying that, but it is saying your human nature, you are in a state apart from God that you cannot fix on your own, that you are not the person, the creature, the image bearer that God made you to be because of the sin that it has created and an unconquerable division between you and God. And it taints even your good works in that sense. And so it's not, yeah, I thought that was worth saying because I remember struggling with that concept when I first ran into it. So I think that's one of the, the things that's really important to note. And I know that you, we have a note on here about how this plays out in, in, in the Wesleyan and holiness movements too. Yeah, yeah. So still inside the church, I guess, would be the way to go. Um, or not still inside, but going inside the church instead of, you know, the outside secular or what, what other things have hit us, especially, you know, enlightenment, as we mentioned. Um, 
is actually we can jump way back prior to the reformation oh nice and um and, and i'd recommend you know go down this rabbit hole even wikipedia would give you a good start up but it was um a monk named uh, pelagius and he basically denied all of original sin and said people were good so in that sense i guess the church was maybe 100 years or so ahead of uh or 1500 years or so ahead of the enlightenment mm-hmm. um he was i believe third century and yeah, he, he essentially d- denied our sin and said that we are good and therefore we choose God. Uh, other people choose not to, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, um, he was a contemporary of Augustine who, you know, kind of formulated our modern-ish doctrine of original sin and said, no, like, <laughs> go read Paul. Please, you know, just go read the Bible, read Christ, read the whole story of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, we continue to sin over and over again, right? Um mm-hmm. What was it? Everyone becomes a Calvinist when they first have their kids because you don't have to teach a baby to sin, right? <laughs> yes. So it's yeah. it's that type of belief. Uh, and then coming back into the Reformation, so we had they had the Catholic view again. There's there's no denying that we need grace in, in the Catholic view. The reformer said no, it's grace alone. Then there was another group, um, kind of a counter Reformation called the Remonstrants, and they uh, kind of followed or uh, were associated with Arminius. And he again brought back this kind of semi-plagian, not full denial of everything, but basically um, said people were good or became good. Um, mm-hmm. Baptism can wash away that original sin, and that was carried through. That's if you've heard of uh, Calvinism or Tulip or you know kind of those. What's the is it? Five points of Calvinism. Oh, yeah. Five, five points, points of yeah. Calvinism. Sure. Those actually they, they didn't. First of all, they didn't come with Calvin, and they didn't start with him. Uh, the remonstrants came up with their five points, and this was a response to that. And that, that's beyond the scope of what we're doing here. Um, but this idea actually moved it away further than it was, and the, but it brought it back that you're good. And this heavily influenced um, Wesley, John Wesley. He, he was certainly Arminist in nature. He believed in prevenient grace. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> uh, so he actually had to... If you believe you're good and you can choose God, you have to have multiple levels of grace, right, to Mm -hmm. say that it's grace alone. So we had that prevenient grace that would kind of wash away your sin, enabling you then to later accept and work with grace, which is why, uh, and we'll get in this later, how you can lose sin. That's something they believe. But anyway, Wesley was hugely influential in America. Of course, that was the first kind of denomination uh, founded in America, right? Mm -hmm. Wesley kind of moving away from the Anglican. And uh, that led to the kind of the holiness movement and all that, and mm-hmm. really influences probably half of Baptists today. So you have a whole theological group, um, and, and they will say grace, but they they may even say grace alone. I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure, but uh, their theology does not match that. So this this is becoming the idea that you are sinful and you need Christ, and it's only through grace is becoming more narrow and more narrow inside and outside of the church. Yeah, it really is. And that, and that really does lead us into the, the next section we had to, to chat through was just its impact on the church and the role of grace alone within the church. And a lot of what you've just said takes us right there. This, We have so many people who profess grace alone on its face, like on concept. It's yes, 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 that makes sense. That's what we're taught. But then even in the practical day-to-day, oftentimes the confessional beliefs that are professed don't match the functional beliefs. And what I mean by that are the, the actions and the the things that you end up thinking and doing and, and the ways that you live out your faith. So th- extrapolated out that 
can take the form of making a decision for Christ, an aisle walking that contributes to your overall salvation. These, um, this sense and this never-ending, I guess, feeling that if you are not every day reading your Bible, every day going to church, while those are good things and we should absolutely be doing them, if you're not doing them, you feel less worthy of your salvation, that somehow you are chipping away at your salvation um, instead of living from the security of knowing you are saved and doing those things out of natural response and desire to to commune with God and to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of God, that it's just this this fear that you are not living up to your salvation is really how I think it's played out in a lot of circles. Yeah, if you've grown up in, um, like I said, probably give it a Baptist. Um, I actually, I don't really know many people in the holiness, uh, but I know this is pretty broad with, quote, independent churches, uh, is that rededicating your life, mm-hmm. right? So that's, you I go, you go that. exactly. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure everyone has multiple mm-hmm. times. If, if this was your, you know, if you didn't have a good Reformation theology, uh, which I, I did not. Um, and essentially, <laughs> Uh, this this is almost getting us back to the Catholic concept of, of penance, right? Mm. So this is like to keep our salvation, we must like sit down and pray and repray and rededicate our mm-hmm. life and refocus our, our again, we're refocusing our bodily efforts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're refocusing yeah. so that we're going to rededicate and this time we're going to get back to earning that salvation. And of course, that's not what anyone says. No one says if you've started to... Uh, sin, or you feel far from God, then go back and re-earn it. But but the language used is it's clearly what they're saying, right? I mean, they're saying if you felt far, or if you've been backsliding, was always the popular term, yes, right? I then like rededicate yes. yourself today, <laughs> and if people would get rebaptized for this. I, I mean, that, that's yeah. if you're reinstituting sacramental. Yeah. Anyway, it's anything you have to do extra is not grace mm-hmm. alone, and. People just do not want to accept this. I'll give one more example so we can yeah. keep rolling. Uh, the, I'm sure a lot of people have heard this. Uh, it's a free gift. Of course it's a free gift, and mm-hmm. it's grace alone, right? But, you know, someone's holding that gift out to you. Mm-hmm. You have to stand up and take to it. To take it, yeah. Right. You, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, 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 have to like, you have to take it, mm-hmm. yeah. You have to, Otherwise, so, it just sits there. <laughs> right there, and maybe we'll dive into that a little more um, in our faith alone one, yes. right? So, but that's... If it's, yeah, <laughs> again, it, it's back to grace. There's no works for you. Um, and we don't, like I said, we, we don't want to admit that. We want to add to it. And uh, again, man, it's hard not to mix all these together. So let's, it, it definitely I'll try is. to get back on our list, or you get us back on our list. <laughs> I don't know if I even can, because there is the, <laughs> the line between, in particular, the grace and faith conversation is mm-hmm. probably the closest of all of these because of the overlapping nature. So, as we've even been talking about it, I continually go back to to the view of God as the initiator and a state of depravity. And I, I keep and so I'm thinking as I think about what it mean, what it means for the church today and how we view ourselves. How often do we enter into, for example, reading a text of the Bible? And you know, even in I shared earlier about reading through the stories of the Israelites and seeing them walking away from God. And sometimes it's very easy. And I mean, I've done it. I'm sure many of you have done it. You say, Oh, I'm I would I would not have done that. I'm not that bad. But having that concept of it's by only by God's grace alone that you are actually one saved, and it's a reminder that you are in a fallen state of humanity, and mm-hmm. that yes, you are you are just like the Israelites. You are just like the you know the stories and the characters that you see played out. And so, I have found myself entering into the grace alone conversation from the opposite end in order to keep myself in that tension and balance. Often, yeah, that's. <laughs> 
That's great. You, you reminded me what I was actually trying to say with the, the gift that, again, the uh, that work part was going to come later. The fact is, it's only grace that pulls us to God. It's only because he graciously gives us salvation mm-hmm. that we can even move towards him. He makes a first step. The truth of the matter is, in that kind of metaphor going back there, right? If he's holding out the gift offering you and you say, you have to take it. The reality is, again, we are dead. We would say no. Mm -hmm. If Christ is in there offering us the free gift, we say no. Mm -hmm. And yet he still comes and gets us anyway. I mean, he rescues us, redeems us despite our rejection of him Mm -hmm. were it up to us if it weren't for his gracious activity in our life. Yeah, it really does. And quite honestly, that that flows really well into the the next piece of how grace alone today is so such an important part of Christian life. And it's because mm. that same grace, that same God-initiated, um, motivated aspect of God's character is what fills the church. It's what helps the church grow. It's what sustains the church. It's what it's what preaching and prayer and communion are all founded upon. It's the very embodiment of God in those that really bring their value. And it's it's the means of grace by which God grows his church and builds a people for himself. And without God's grace, that's one of those practical things today. Like God's grace is needed today still the same way, both for the saving of new believers that come into the kingdom of God, but also for the continued sanctification and development. We may, after being saved, start reading our Bible and going to church. And I'm hoping that you all do because those are the ways in which God continues to to make you more and more into the image of Christ. But that very thing is by God's grace alone still, even after your salvation. It is by God's grace alone, his provision, his action that continues to develop believers in the whole church. Sure, that's a good point. The uh, grace alone, essential doctrine of reformation, essential for us today, uh, probably more so than it was then because we're dealing inside the church, outside the church. And it's our, again, it's the basis of our relationship with Christ. And I'm, I, I want to keep going. We've already hit 20 minutes. We need to, we need to jump into the, the next session for there's too much overlap. <laughs> yes. uh, so if you like this, there's, there's a ton more we could talk about. We, we didn't want to, this wasn't supposed to be a theological episode. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're quoting just lightly and largely from scripture. There's whole textbooks. There's whole classes on uh, grace alone, justification, election, calling, um, Go, go read the Bible. Go read those. Talk to us. You can find us on uh, social media if you want to talk to us about them. If you yeah. want to, go talk to your pastor, too. Go I don't talk know. to your pastor. <laughs> Pastors be warned. <laughs> no, but it's good. Well, and, you know, in all of these, we're also going to link uh, a particular book series that, that we purchased last year to actually do some more in-depth study in these to supplement other readings that we've done along the way. A few of the books we would recommend a little more highly than some of the other ones, but the whole series in general, if you are really interested in this, could be mm-hmm. a good starting point for some of these. Because, for example, the Grace Alone book of the five solas in this series was probably both of our favorites. Oh, for sure. Because of what highly it offered. And in it. fact, many of the things that stuck out to me were its implications for the church today in the areas of how God's grace supports the church, the preaching, the communion, and the prayer of the saints, and the way by which that really um, God's spirit embodies all of those and is the means of grace by which all things happen today in the church. So that particular entry point was unique and different and new for mm-hmm. me, and I really liked it. I know we talked about it at length. So if what I said toward the end resonates and piques your interest, that particular book would be a high recommendation for us. Yeah, and anything else from J.I. Packer or R.C. Sproul, they are high, high on the grace and how that impacts our life. Mm-hmm.
Absolutely. And you know, I, I think one thing to keep in mind too, we find grace in almost every worship song we sing. One, because mm. it's such an important foundational element of what we believe. It also rhymes very well with a lot of things. Wow. <laughs> it does. Um, it's not why we use it, but I think but it's But also a, kind of it's, why. It's, you know, from just a practical standpoint. Um, but it's it's important. The next time you're singing a song about God's grace, be thinking about what that really means. And it will deepen the way that you worship and the way that you respond, even in a corporate setting, as you take the time to reflect on these concepts that can sometimes... We can become so familiar with them that we lose some of the depth and the significance of their meaning. And so a little caveat at the end, next time you're singing a worship song, look for the words grace in it and sit with some of this in a different way. Or hymns. Or hymns, yes. Any song that you're singing. I didn't mean to be exclusive there. Um, but that's it for now. We are we are going to jump into our Faith Alone episode. We hope to see you there when we jump into that one. And we'll continue the conversation of how all these work together. So thanks for joining us this time. <laughs>